Happy Thanksgiving and welcome to the Mayorzine. I have to say, I grow to appreciate this particular holiday more and more as I get older. And it's not just because of the food. Although I do make a Thanksgiving meatloaf that's to die for. No, I'm talking about the sentiment of the holiday. A time when we reflect on what we have in life, on our friends, our families, and give thanks. This year, I'm thankful for all of you. And I mean that. If you are listening to this right now, that means you. Patron or not, if my voice is going into your ears and you appreciate what I'm doing here, then that keeps me going and I thank you for it. It's been a rough couple of years and this podcast has helped me find my joy again and I am blessed that I get to share it with you. Speaking of sharing, how about we go get a loaf of bread from the queer little baker for our first course? The Queer Little Baker Man by Phyla Butler Bowman Each child ran to tell the news to another child until soon the streets echoed with the sound of many running feet and the clear November air was full of the sound of happy laughter as a crowd of little children thronged as near as they dared to the little baker's shop, while the boldest crept so close that they could feel the heat from the big brick oven and see the gleaming rows of baker's pans. The little baker never said a word. He washed his hands at the windmill water spout and dried them, waving them in the crisp air. Then he unfolded a long spotless table, and setting it up before his shop door, he began to mold the loaves, while the wondering children grew nearer and nearer to watch him. He molded big long loaves and tiny round loaves, wee loaves filled with currants, square loaves with queer markings on them, fat loaves and flat loaves, and loaves in shapes such as the children had never seen before. And always as he molded, he sang a soft tune to these words. By my loaves of brown and white, molded for the child's delight, who forgets another's need, eats unthankful and in greed, but the child who breaks his bread with another, love has fed. By and by the children began to whisper to each other, I shall buy that very biggest loaf, said the biggest boy. Mother lets me buy what I wish. I shall eat it alone, which is fair if I pay for it. Oh, said the tiniest little girl, that would be greedy. You could never eat so big a loaf alone. If I pay for it, it is mine, said the biggest boy boastfully, and one need not share what is his own unless he wishes. Oh, said the tiniest little girl, but she said it more softly this time, and she drew away from the biggest boy and looked at him with eyes that had grown big and round. I have a penny, she said to the little lame boy and you and I can have one of those wee loaves together. They have currants in them, so we shall not mind if the loaf is small. No, indeed, said the little lame boy, whose face had grown wistful when the biggest boy had talked of the great loaf. No, indeed, but you shall take the bigger piece. Then the little baker man raked out the bright coals from the great oven 
into an iron basket, and he put in the loaves every one while the children crowded closer with eager faces. When the last loaf was in, he shut the oven door with a clang so loud and merry that the children broke into a shout of laughter. Then the queer little baker man came and stood in his tent door, and he was smiling, and he sang again a merry little tune to these words. Clang, clang, my oven floor, my loaves will bake as oft before, and you may play where shines the sun until each loaf is brown and done. Then away ran the children, laughing and looking at the door of the shop where the queer little baker stood and where the raked-out coals, bursting at times, cast long red lights against the brown wall. And as they ran, they sang together the queer little baker's merry song. Clang, clang, my oven floor, the loaves will bake as oft before. Then some played at hide-and-seek among the sheaves of ungarnered corn, and some ran gleefully through the heaped-up leaves of russet and gold for joy to hear them rustling. But some, eager, returned home for pennies to buy a loaf when the queer little baker should call. The loaves are ready, white and brown, for every little child in town. Come buy Thanksgiving loaves and eat, but only love can make them sweet. Soon all the air was filled with the sound of the swift running feet as the children flew like a cloud of leaves blown by the wind in answer to the queer little baker's call. When they came to his shop, they paused, laughing and whispering, as the little baker laid out the loaves on the spotless table. This is mine, said the biggest boy, and laying down a silver coin he snatched the great loaf and ran away to break it by himself. Then came the impatient boy, crying, Give me my loaf! This is mine, and give it to me at once! Do you not see my coin is silver? Do not keep me waiting! The little baker never said a word. He did not smile. He did not frown. He did not hurry. He gave the impatient boy his loaf and watched him as he too hurried away to eat his loaf alone. Then came others, crowding, pushing with their money, the strongest and rudest gaining first place, and snatching each a loaf they ran off to eat without a word of thanks, while some very little children looked on wistfully, not able even to gain a place. All this time the queer little baker kept steadily on laying out the beautiful loaves on the spotless table. A gentle lad came, when the crowd grew less, and giving all the pennies he had, he bought loaves for all the little ones, so that by and by no one was without a loaf. The tiniest little girl went away hand in hand with the little lame boy to share his wee loaf, and both were smiling. And whoever broke one of those smallest loaves found it larger than it had seemed at first. But now the biggest boy was beginning to frown. This loaf is sour, he said angrily. But is it not your own loaf? said the baker. And did you not choose it yourself, and choose to eat it alone? Do not complain of the loaf, since it is your own choosing. Then those who had snatched the loaves ungratefully and hurried away, without waiting for a word of thanks, came back. We came for good bread, they cried, but those loaves are sodden and heavy. See the lad there with all those children? His bread is light. Give us too light bread and sweet. But the baker smiled a strange smile. You chose in haste, he said, as those choose who have no thought in sharing. I cannot change your loaves. I cannot choose for you. Had you buying forgotten that mine are thanksgiving loaves? I shall come again. Then you can buy more wisely. Then these children went away thoughtfully. 
But the very little children and the gentle lad sat eating their bread with joyous laughter, and each tiny loaf was broken into many pieces as they shared with each other. And to them the bread was as fine as cake and as sweet as honey. Then the queer little baker brought cold water and put out the fire. He folded his spotless table and took down the boards of his little brown shop, packed all into his wagon, and drove away singing a quaint tune. Soft winds rustled the corn and swept the boughs together with a musical chuckling. And where the brown leaves were piled thickest, making a little mound, sat the tiniest little girl and the little lame boy, eating their sweet currant loaf happily together. I hope you saved room for the main dish, turkey. I really do enjoy a nicely roasted turkey with some chestnut stuffing and mashed po- Wait, what? Not turkey dinner? Live what? Performing turkeys? Whoever heard of performing turkeys? This I gotta see. The Debut of Daniel Webster by Isabel Gordon Curtis. I guess you can get the L roof shingled now, most any old time, cried Homer Tid. He bounced in at the kitchen door. A blast of icy wind followed him. Gracious! Shut the door, Homer, and then tell me your news. His mother shivered and pulled a little brown shawl tighter about her shoulders. The boy planted himself behind the stove and laid his mittened hands comfortably around the pipe. Oh, I've made a great deal, mother! Homer's freckled face glowed with satisfaction. What? asked Mrs. Tidd. Did you see the man that just drove out of the yard? No, I didn't, Homer. Well, twas Mr. Richards, the Mr. Richards of Finch and Richards, the big market folks over in the city. Has he bought your Thanksgiving turkeys? He ain't bought them for Thanksgiving. Well, what are you so set up about, boy? He's rented the whole flock. He's to pay me three dollars a day for them. Then he's going to buy them all for Christmas. Land sakes, three dollars a day. Mrs. Tidd dropped one side of a pan of apples she was carrying, and some of them went rolling about the kitchen floor. Homer nodded. For how long? she asked eagerly. For a week. Homer's freckles disappeared in the crimson glow of enthusiasm that overspread his face. Eighteen dollars for nothing but exhibit in a bunch of turkeys. Seems to me some folks must have money to throw away. Mrs. Tidd stared perplexedly over the top of her glasses. I'll tell you all about it, mother. Homer took a chair and planted his feet on the edge of the oven. Mr. Richards is going to have a great Thanksgiving food show, and he wants a flock of live turkeys. He's been driving around the country looking for some. The postmaster sent him here. He told him about Daniel Webster's tricks. They don't make Daniel any better eating, objected his mother. Maybe not. But don't you see? Well, Homer's laugh was an embarrassed one. I'm going to put Daniel and Gettysburg through their tricks right in the store window. You beamed. 
and the mother looked in rapt admiration at her clever son. I be, answered Homer triumphantly. I don't know, boy, just what I think of it, said his mother slowly. Taint exactly a, a gentlemanly sort of thing to do, be it? I reckon I beant a gentleman, mother, replied Homer with his jolly laugh. Tell me all about it. Well, I was feeding the turkeys when Mr. Richards drove in. He said he heard I had some trick turkeys and he'd like to see them. Lucky enough, I hadn't fed them. They was awful hungry. And I tell you, they never did their tricks better. What did Mr. Richards say? He thought it was the most amazing thing he'd ever seen in his life. He said he wouldn't have believed turkeys had enough gumption in them to learn a trick of any kind. Did you tell him how you'd fussed with them ever since there was little chicks? I did. He was real interested. And he offered me three dollars to give a show three times a day. He's got a window half as big as this kitchen. He'll have it wired in and the turkeys will stay there at his expense. Along before Christmas, he'll give me 22 cents a pound for him. Well, I vow, Homer, it's pretty good pay. Mr. Richards gave me a commutation on the railroad. He's to send after the turkeys and bring them back so I won't have any expense. Homer rose and sauntered about the kitchen, picking up the apples that had rolled in all directions over the floor. A week before Thanksgiving, the corner in front of Finch and Richards' great market looked as it was wont to look on Circus Day. Only the eyes of the crowds were not turned expectantly up Main Street. They were riveted on a window in the big store. Passers-by tramped out into the snowy street when they reached the mob at the corner. The front of the store was decorated with a fringe of plump turkeys. One window had held a glowing mountain of fruit and vegetables arranged by someone with a keen eye to color. Monstrous pumpkins, splendid purple cabbages, rosy apples and russet pears, green and purple grapes, snowy stalks of celery, and corn ears yellow as sunshine. Crimson beets neighbored with snowy parsnips, scarlet carrots, and silk-wrapped onions. Eggplants gleaming like deep-hued amethysts circled about magnificent cauliflowers, while red and yellow bananas made gay mosaic walks through the fruit mountain. Wherever a crack or a cranny had been left was a mound of ruby cranberries, fine raisin bunches, or brown nuts. It was a remarkable display of American products. Yet after the first awe of admiration, people passed on to the farther window, where six plump turkeys, supremely innocent of a feast day fete, flapped their wings or gobbled impertinently when a small boy laid his nose flat against the window. Three times a day the crowd grew twenty deep. It laughed and shouted and elbowed one another good-naturedly, for the Thanksgiving spirit was abroad. Men tossed children up on their stalwart shoulders, then small hands clapped ecstatically and small legs kicked with wild enthusiasm. The hero of the hour was a freckled, red-haired boy who came leaping through a wire door with an old broom over his shoulders. Every turkey waited for him eagerly, hungrily. They knew that each old familiar trick, learned away back in chickhood, would earn a good feed. When the freckled boy began to whistle, or when his voice rang out in a shrill order, it was the signal for Daniel Webster, for Gettysburg, for Amanda Ann, Mehitable, Nancy, or Farragut to step to the center of the stage and do some irresistibly funny turn with a turkey's bland solemnity. 
None of the birds had attacks of stage fright. Their acting was as self-possessed as if they were in the old farmyard, with no audience present but Mrs. Tidd to lean smiling over the fence with a word of praise and the coveted handful of golden corn. With every performance, the crowd grew more dense, the applause more uproarious, and the Thanksgiving trade at Finch and Richards bigger than it had been in years. Each night, Homer took the last train home, tired but happy, for three crisp greenbacks were added to the roll in his small shabby wallet. Two days before Thanksgiving, Homer, in his blue overalls and faded sweater, was busy at work. The gray of the dawn was just creeping into the east, while the boy went hurrying through his chores. There was still a man's work to be done before he took the ten o'clock train to town. Besides, he had promised to help his mother about the house. His grandfather and uncle and aunt and three small cousins were coming to eat their Thanksgiving feast at the old farmhouse. Homer whistled gaily while he bedded the creatures with fresh straw. The whistle trailed into an indistinct trill. The boy felt a pang of loneliness as he glanced into the turkey pen. There was nobody there but old Mother Salvia. Homer tossed her a handful of corn. Poor old lady, I suppose you're lonesome, ain't you now? Never mind, when spring comes you'll be scratching around with a whole raft of nice little chickies at your heels. We'll teach them a fine trick or two, won't we, old Salvia? Salvia clucked over the corn appreciatively. Homer! Homer, come here quick! Down the frozen path through the yard came Mrs. Tidd with the little brown shawl wrapped tightly about her head. She fluttered a yellow envelope in her hand. Homer, boy, it's a telegraph come. I can't read it. I've mislaid my glasses. Homer was by her side in a minute, tearing open the flimsy envelope. It's from Finch and Richards, mother, he cried excitedly. They say, take the first train to town without fail. What do you suppose they want you for? asked Mrs. Tidd with a very anxious face. Perhaps the store's burned down, gasped Homer. He brushed one rough hand across his eyes. Poor Daniel Webster in Gettysburg. I didn't know anybody could set so much store by turkeys. Maybe it ain't nothing bad, Homer. Mrs. Tidd laid her hand upon his shoulder. Maybe they want you to give an extra early show or something. She suggested it cheerfully. Maybe, echoed Homer. But, Mother, I've got to hurry to catch that 7.30 train. Let me go with you, Homer. You don't need to, cried the boy. It probably ain't nothing serious. I'm going, cried Mrs. Tidd decisively. You don't suppose I could stay here doing nothing but waiting and wondering? Mrs. Tidd and Homer caught a car at the city depot. Five minutes later, they stood in front of Finch and Richard's big market. Mother, whispered the boy as he stepped off the car. Mother, my turkeys, they're not there. Something's happened. See the crowd. They pushed their way through a mob that was peering in at the windows and through the windows of locked doors. The row of plump turkeys was not hung this morning under the big sign. The magnificent window display of fruit and vegetables had been ruthlessly demolished. What do you suppose can have happened? whispered Mrs. Tidd, while they waited for a clerk to come hurrying down the store and unlock the door. Homer shook his head. Mr. Richards himself came to greet them. Well, young man, he cried, I've had enough of your pesky bird show. There's a hundred dollars worth of provisions gone. To say nothing of the trade we are turning away, two days before Thanksgiving of all times in the year. Good land, whispered Mrs. Tidd. Her eyes were wandering about the store. It was scattered from one end to the other with wasted food. 
Sticky rivers trickled here and there across the floor. A small army of clerks was hard at work sweeping and mopping. Where's my turkeys? asked Homer. Your turkeys, confound them, snarled Mr. Richards. They're safe and sound in their crate in my back store, all but that blasted old gobbler you call Daniel Webster. He's doing his stunts on a top shelf. We found him there tearing cereal packages into shreds. For mercy's sake, go and see if you can't get him down. He has almost pecked the eyes out of every clerk who has tried to lay a finger on him. I'd like to wring his ugly neck. Mr. Richards' face grew red as the comb of Daniel Webster himself. Homer and his mother dashed across the store. High above their heads strutted Daniel Webster with a slow, stately tread. Occasionally, he peered down at the ruin and confusion below, commenting upon it with a lordly, satisfied gobble. Daniel Webster, called Homer coaxingly. Good old Daniel, come and see me. The boy slipped cautiously along to where a stepladder stood. Daniel, he called persuasively. Wouldn't you like to come home, Daniel? Daniel perked down with pleased recognition in his eyes. Homer crept up the ladder. He was preparing to lay a hand on one of Daniel's black legs when the turkey hopped away with a triumphant gobble and went racing gleefully along the wide shelf. A row of bottles filled with salad dressing stood in Daniel's path. He cleared them out of the way with one energetic kick. They tumbled to a lower shelf. Their yellow contents crept in a sluggish stream toward the mouth of a tea box. I'll have that bird shot, thundered Mr. Richards. That's all there is about it. Wait a minute, sir, pleaded Mrs. Tidd. Homer will get him. Daniel Webster would neither be coaxed nor commanded. He wandered up and down the shelf, gobbling vociferously into the faces of the excited mob. Henry, go and get a pistol, cried Mr. Richards, turning to one of his clerks. Homer, Mrs. Tidd clutched the boy's arm. Why don't you make believe you're shooting Daniel? Maybe he'll lie down so you can get him. Homer called for a broom. He tossed it gun fashion across his shoulder and crept along slowly, sliding a ladder before him to the spot where the turkey stood watching with intent eyes. He put one foot upon the lowest step, then he burst out in a spirited whistle. It was marching through Georgia. The bird stared at him fixedly. Bang! cried Homer, and he pointed the broom straight at the recreant turkey. Dana Webster dropped stiff. A second later, Homer had a firm grasp of the scaly legs. Daniel returned instantly to life, but the rebellious head was tucked under his master's jacket. Dana Webster thought he was being strangled to death. There! cried Homer triumphantly. He closed the lid of the poultry crate and wiped the perspiration from his forehead. There! I guess you won't get out again! He followed Mr. Richards to the front of the store to view the devastation. Who would have thought turkeys could have ripped up strong wire like that? cried the enraged market man, pointing to the shattered door. I guess Daniel began the mischief, said Homer soberly. He's awful strong. I'm sorry I ever laid eyes on Daniel, exclaimed Mr. Richards. I'll hate to see Finch. He'll be in on the 420 train. He's conservative. He never had any use for the turkey show. When did you find out that they... what had happened? asked Homer timidly. At five o'clock. Two of the men got here early. They telephoned me. I never saw such destruction in my life. Your turkeys had sampled most everything in the store, from split peas to molasses. What they didn't eat, they knocked over or tore open. 
I guess they won't need feeding for a week. They're chock full of oatmeal, beans, crackers, peanuts, pickles, toothpicks, prunes, soap, red herrings, cabbage, about everything their crops can hold. I'm awfully sorry, faltered Homer. So am I, said Mr. Richards resolutely. Now the best thing you can do is take your flock and clear out. I've had enough of performing turkeys. Homer and his mother waited at the depot for the eleven o'clock train. Beside them stood a crate filled with turkeys that wore a well-fed, satisfied expression. Somebody tapped Homer on the shoulder. You're the boy who does the stunts with turkeys, aren't you? asked the well-dressed man with a silk hat and a flower in his buttonhole. Yes, answered the boy wonderingly. I've been hunting for you. That was a great rumpus you made at Finch and Richards. The whole town's talking about it. Yes, answered Homer again, and he blushed scarlet. Taking your turkeys home? Homer nodded. I've come to see if we can keep them in town a few days longer. The boy shook his head vigorously. I don't want any more turkey shows. Not if the price is big enough to make it worth your while? No, said Homer sturdily. Let us go into the station and talk it over. On Thanksgiving afternoon, the Colonial Theater, the best vaudeville house in the city, held a throng that was dined well and was happy enough to appreciate any sort of fun. The children, hundreds of them, shrieked with delight over every act. The women laughed, the men applauded with great hearty handclaps. A little buzz of excitement went round the house when at the end of the fourth turn, two boys, instead of setting up the regulation big red number, displayed a brand new card. It read, Extra Number, Homer Tid and His Performing Turkeys. A shout of delighted anticipation went up from the audience. Every paper in town had made a spectacular story of the ruin at Finch and Richards. Nothing could have been so splendid a surprise. Everybody broke into applause. Everybody except one little woman who sat in the front row of the orchestra. Her face was pale. Her hands clasped and unclasped each other tremulously. Homer, boy, she whispered to herself. The curtain rolled up. The stage was set for a realistic farmyard scene. The floor was scattered with straw. An old pump leaned over in one corner. Hay tumbled untidily from a barn loft. A coop with a hen and chickens stood by the fence. From her stall stared a white-faced cow. Her eyes blinked at the glare of the footlights. The orchestra struck up a merry tune. The cow uttered an astonished moo. Then in walked a sturdy lad with fine, broad shoulders, red hair, and freckles. His boots clumped, his blue overalls were faded, his sweater had once been red. At his heels stepped six splendid turkeys, straight in line, every one with its eyes on the master. Homer never knew how he did it. Two minutes earlier, he had said to the manager desperately, I'll cut and run right off as soon as I set eyes on folks. Perhaps he drew courage from the anxious gaze in his mother's eyes. Hers was the only face he saw in the great audience. Perhaps it was the magnificent aplomb of the turkeys that inspired him. They stepped serenely, as if walking out on a gorgeously lighted stage was an everyday event in their lives. Anyhow... Homer threw up his head and led the turkey march round and round past the footlights till the shout of applause dwindled into silence. The boy threw back his head and snapped his fingers. The turkeys retreated to form in line at the back of the stage. 
Gettysburg, cried Homer, pointing to a stately plump hen. Gettysburg stepped to the center of the stage. How many kernels of corn have I thrown you, Getty? he asked. The turkey turned to count them, with her head cocked reflectively on one side. Then she scratched her foot on the floor. One, two, three, four, five. Right. Now you may eat them, Getty. Gettysburg wore her new one laurels with an excellent grace. She jumped through a row of hoops, slid gracefully about the stage on a pair of miniature roller skates. She stepped from stool to chair, from chair to table, in perfect time with Homer's whistle and a low strain of melody from the orchestra. She danced a stately jig on the table, then with a satisfied cluck descended on the other side to the floor. Amanda Ann, Mehitable, Nancy, and Farragut achieved their triumphs in a slow dance made up of dignified hops and mazy turns. They stood in a decorous line awaiting the return of their master, for Homer had dashed suddenly from the stage. He reappeared holding his head up proudly. Now he wore the blue uniform and jaunty cap of a soldier boy. A gun leaned on his shoulder. The orchestra put all its vigor, patriotism, and wind into marching through Georgia. Straight to Homer's side when they heard his whistle wheeled the turkey regiment, ready to keep step, to fall in line, to march and countermarch. Only one feathered soldier fell. It was Daniel Webster. At a bang from Homer's rifle, he dropped stiff and stark. From children here and there in the audience came a cry of horror. They turned to ask in frightened whispers if the turkey was truly shooted. As if to answer the question, Daniel leaped to his feet. Homer pulled a stars and stripes from his pocket and waved it enthusiastically. Then the orchestra dashed into Yankee Doodle. It awoke some patriotic spirit in the soul of Daniel Webster. He left his master and, puffing himself to his stateliest proportions, stalked to the footlights to utter one glorious soul-stirring gobble. The curtain fell, but the applause went on and on and on. At last, out again across the stage, came Homer waving old glory. Dana Webster, Gettysburg, Amanda Ann, Nancy, Mehitable, and Farragut followed in a triumphal march. Homer's eyes were bent past the footlights, searching for the face of one little woman. This time the face was one radiant flush, and her hands were adding their share to the deafening applause. Homer, boy! she said fondly. This time she spoke aloud, but nobody heard it. An encore for the extra turn was so vociferous, it almost shook the plaster from the ceiling. Huh, who'd have thunk it? Our last story is more of a reminiscence. By Eugene Field, we join poor old Ezra as he consoles himself by remembering one of his favorite Thanksgivings. Now, I don't have a particular select memory of Thanksgiving myself. For me, it's more like a feeling. Thanksgiving was my grandmother's holiday, my mom's mother. We'd pile in the car and go to her house and join ten zillion other relatives in a dining room that just seemed to expand to whatever size was needed. Sort of like the room of requirement, but Polish. And we didn't just have turkey and the usual fare. Being a Polish family, we also had kwumkis, stuffed cabbage, pierogi, kibasin, sauerkraut, all sorts of mashed veggies, and two or three different kinds of stuffing. My grandma made this chestnut stuffing. Oh, man, it's my absolute favorite. My mother continued the tradition for a little while until my brother had kids. Now he hosts Thanksgiving. 
But that's how I always think of this holiday. In a never-ending dining room, surrounded by family, eating a feast fit for kings and queens. Even if it is just me, my wife, and my Thanksgiving meatloaf, like it's going to be this year. Which is the best meatloaf ever. I'm kind of like Ezra in that regard, I guess. Ezra's Thanksgiving Out West by Eugene Field Ezra had written a letter to the home folks, and in it he had complained that never before had he spent such a weary, lonesome day as this Thanksgiving day had been. Having finished this letter, he sat for a long time, gazing idly into the open fire that snapped cinders all over the hearthstone and sent its red forks dancing up the chimney to join the winds that frolicked and gambled across the Kansas prairies that raw November night. It had rained hard all day and was cold, and although the open fire made every honest effort to be cheerful, Ezra, as he sat in front of it in the wooden rocker and looked down into the glowing embers, experienced a dreadful feeling of loneliness and homesickness. I'm sick of Kansas, said Ezra to himself. Here I've been in this plaguey country for going on a year, and yes, I'm sick of it, powerful sick of it. What a miserable Thanksgiving this has been. They don't know what Thanksgiving is out this way. I wish I was back in old Massachusetts. That's the country for me, and they have the kind of Thanksgiving I like. Musing in this strain, while the rain went patter-patter on the window panes, Ezra saw a strange sight in the fireplace. Yes, right among the embers and the crackling flames, Ezra saw a strange, beautiful picture unfold and spread itself out like a panorama. How very wonderful, murmured the young man. Yet he did not take his eyes away, for the picture soothed him, and he loved to look upon it. It is a picture of long ago, said Ezra softly. I had like to forgot it, but now it comes back to me as natural-like as an old friend. And I seem to be part of it, and the feeling of that time comes back with the picture, too. Ezra did not stir. His head rested upon his hand, and his eyes were fixed upon the shadows in the firelight. It is a picture of the old home, said Ezra to himself. I am back there in Belchertown, with the holy oak hills up north and the Berkshire Mountains looming up gray and misty-like in the western horizon. Seems as if it was early morning, and everything is still, and it is so cold when we boys crawl out of bed that if it wasn't Thanksgiving morning, we'd crawl back again and wait for Mother to call us. But it is Thanksgiving morning, 
and we're going skating down on the pond. The squealing of the pigs has told us it is five o'clock and we must hurry. We're going to call by for the Dickerson boys and Hiram Peabody, and we've got to hyper. Brother Amos gets on about half of my clothes, and I get on about half of his, but it's all the same. They're stout, warm clothes, and they're big enough to fit any of us boys. Mother looked out for that when she made them. When we go downstairs, we find the girls there, all bundled up nice and warm, Mary and Helen and Cousin Irene. They're going with us, and we all start out tiptoe and quiet-like, so as not to wake up the old folks. The ground is frozen hard. We stub our toes on the frozen ruts in the road. When we come to the minister's house, Laura is standing on the front stoop a-waiting for us. Laura's the minister's daughter. She's a friend of Sister Helen's, pretty as a daguerreotype, and gentle-like and tender. Laura lets me carry her skates, and I'm glad of it, although I have my hands full already with the lantern, the hockeys, and the rest. Hiram Peabody keeps us waiting, for he has overslept himself, and when he comes trotting out at last, the girls make fun of him. All except Sister Mary, and she sort of sticks up for Hiram, and we're all so cute, we kind of calculate we know the reason why. And now, said Ezra softly, the picture changes. Seems as if I could see the pond. The ice is like a black looking glass. And Hiram Peabody slips up the first thing and down he comes lickety-split and we all laugh. Except Sister Mary. <laughs> and she says it is very impolite to laugh at other folks' misfortunes. Oh, how cold it is. And how my fingers ache with the frost when I take off my mittens to strap on Laura's skates. But oh, how my cheeks burn how careful I am not to hurt Laura, and how I ask her if that's tight enough, Now she tells me, just a little tighter, and how we two keep fooling along till the others have gone, and we are left alone, and how quick I get my own skates strapped on. None of your newfangled skates with springs and plates and clamps and such, but honest, old-fashioned wooden ones with steel runners that curl up over my toes and have a bright brass button on the end. How I strap them and lash them and buckle them on and Laura waits for me and tells me to be sure to get him on tight enough. Why, bless me, after I once got him strapped on, if them skates had come off, the feet would have come with him. And now away we go, Laura and me. Around the bend, near the meadow where Cy Barker's dog killed a woodchuck last summer, we meet the rest. We forget all about the cold. We run races and play snap the whip and cut all sorts of didos, and we never mind the pickerel weed that is frozen in on the ice and trips us up every time we cut the outside edge. And then we boys jump over the air holes, and the girls stand by and scream and tell us they know we're going to drown ourselves. So the hours go, and it is sun up at last, and Sister Helen says we must be getting home. When we take our skates off, our feet feel as if they were wood. Laura has lost her tippet. I lend her mine, and she kind of blushes. The old pond seems glad to have us go, and the fire hangbird's nest in the willow tree waves us goodbye. Laura promises to come over to our house in the evening, and so we break up. Seems now, continued Ezra, musingly, seems now as if I could see us all at breakfast. The race on the pond has made us hungry, and Mother says she never knew anybody else's boys that had such capacities as hers. It is the Yankee Thanksgiving breakfast, sausages and fried potatoes and buckwheat cakes and syrup, a maple syrup, mind ye, for father has his own sugar bush, and there was a big run of sap last season. 
Mother says, Ezri and Amos, won't you never get through eating? We want to clear off the table, for there's pies to make and nuts to crack. And law's sakes alive, the turkey's got to be stuffed yet. Then how we all fly round. Mother sends Helen up into the attic to get a squash while Mary's making the pie crust. Amos and I crack the walnuts. They call them hickory nuts out in this pesky country of sagebrush and pasture land. The walnuts are hard, and it's all we can do to crack them. Every once in a while, one of them slips out of our fingers and goes dancing over the floor or flies into the pan Helen is squeezing pumpkin into through the colander. Helen says we're shiftless and good for nothing but frivolin'. But Mother tells us how to crack the walnuts so as not to let them fly all over the room and so as not to be all jammed to pieces like the walnuts was down at the party at the Peasley's last winter. And now here comes Trifina Foster with her gingham gown and muslin apron on. Her folks have gone up to Amherst for Thanksgiving, and Trefina has come over to help our folks get dinner. She thinks a great deal of Mother, because Mother teaches her Sunday school class and says Trefina ought to marry a missionary. There is bustle everywhere. The rattle of pans and the clatter of dishes, and the new kitchen stove begins to warm up and get red, till Helen loses her wits and is flustered and says she never could get the hang of that stove's dampers. And now murmured Ezra, gently, as a tone of deeper reverence crept into his voice. I can see Father sitting all by himself in the parlor. Father's hair is very gray, and there are wrinkles on his honest old face. He is looking through the window at the holy oak hills over yonder, and I can guess he's thinking of the time when he was a boy like me and Amos, and used to climb over them hills and kill rattlesnakes and hunt partridges. Or doesn't his eyes quite reach the holy oak hills? Do they fall kind of lovingly but sadly on the little burying ground just beyond the village? Ah, Father knows that spot, and he loves it too, for there are treasures there whose memory he wouldn't swap for all the world could give. So while there is a kind of mist in Father's eyes, I can see he is dreaming like of sweet and tender things and a communion with memory hearing voices I never heard and feeling the touch of hands I never pressed. And seeing Father's peaceful face, I find it hard to think of a Thanksgiving sweeter than Father's is. The picture in the firelight changes now, said Ezra, and seems as if I was in the old frame meeting house. The meeting house is on the hill, and meeting begins at half past ten. Our pew was well up in front, seems as if I could see it now. It has a long red cushion on the seat, and in the hymn book rack there is a Bible and a couple of psalmodies. We walk up the aisle slow, and Mother goes in first. Then comes Mary, then me, then Helen, then Amos, and then Father. Father thinks it is just as well to have one of the girls set in between me and Amos. The meeting house is full, for everybody goes to meeting Thanksgiving Day. The minister reads the proclamation and makes a prayer. And then he gives out a psalm, and we all stand up and turn round and join the choir. Sam Merritt has come up from Palmer to spend Thanksgiving with the old folks, and he is singing tenor today in his old place in the choir. Some folks say he sings wonderful well, but I don't like Sam's voice. Laura sings soprano in the choir, and Sam stands next to her and holds the book. Seems as if I could hear the minister's voice, full of earnestness and melody, coming from way up in his little round pulpit. He is telling us why we should be thankful 
And as he quotes scripture and Dr. Watts, we boys wonder how anybody can remember so much of the Bible. Then I get nervous and worried. Seems to me the minister was never coming to lastly, and I find myself wondering whether Laura's listening to what the preaching is about or is writing notes to Sam Merritt in the back of the tomb book. I get thirsty, too, and I fidget about till Father looks at me, and Mother nudges Helen, and Helen passes it along to me with interest. And then, continues Ezra in his reverie, when the last hymn is given out and we stand up again and join the choir, I am glad to see that Laura is singing out of the book with Miss Hubbard, the alto. And going out of meeting, I kind of edge up to Laura and ask her if I can have the pleasure of seeing her home. And now we boys all go out on the common to play ball. The Enfield boys have come over, and as all the Hampshire County folks know, they are tough fellers to beat. Gorm Polly keeps tally because he has got the newest jackknife. Oh, how slick it whittles the old broom handle Gorm picked up in Packard's store and brought along just to keep tally on. It is a great game of ball. The bats are broad and light, and the ball is small and soft. But the Enfield boys beat us at last. Leastwise, they make 70 tallies to our 58 when Heman Fitz knocks the ball over into Aunt Dorcas Easton's yard and Aunt Dorcas comes out and picks up the ball and takes it into the house and we have to stop playing. Then Phineas Owens allows he can flop any boy in Belchertown and Moses Baker takes him up and they wrestle till at last Moses tuckers Phineas out and downs him slick as a whistle. Then we all go home for Thanksgiving dinner is ready. Two long tables have been made into one, and one of the big tablecloths Grandma had when she set up housekeeping is spread over them both. We all sat round, Father, Mother, Aunt Lydia Holbrook, Uncle Jason, Mary, Helen, Trophina Foster, Amos, and me. How big and brown the turkey is, and how good it smells. There are bounteous dishes of mashed potato, turnip, and squash, and the celery is very white and cold, and the biscuits are light and hot, and the stewed cranberries are red as Laura's cheeks. Amos and I get the drumsticks. Mary wants the wishbone to put over the door for Hiram, but Helen gets it. Poor Mary. She always did have to give up to Russian Helen, as we call her. The pies. Oh, what pies Mother makes. No dyspepsia in them, but good nature and good health and hospitality. Pumpkin pies, mince and apple too, and then a big dish of pippins and russets and bellflowers, and last of all, walnuts with cider from the Sabrina Dickerson farm. I tell ye, there's a Thanksgiving dinner for ye. That's what we get in old Belchertown, and that's the kind of living that makes the Yankees so all-fired good and smart. But the best of all, said Ezra, very softly to himself. Oh, yes, the best scene in all the picture is when evening comes, when the lamps are lit in the parlor, when the neighbors come in, and when there is music and singing and games. And it's this part of the picture that makes me homesick now and fills my heart with a longing I never had before. And yet it sort of mellows and comforts me, too. Miss Serena Cadwell, whose beau was killed in the war, plays on the melodeon, and we all sing, all of us, men, women, folks, and children. Sam Merritt is there, and he sings a tenor song about love. The women sort of whisper around that he's going to be married to a Palmer lady next spring, and I think to myself, I never heard better singing than Sam's. Then we play games, 
Proverbs, buzz, clap in, clap out, Copenhagen, fox and geese, button, button, who's got the button, spin the platter, go to Jerusalem, my ships come in, and all the rest. The old folks play with the young folks just as natural as can be. And we all laugh when Deacon Hosea Cowles has to measure six yards of love ribbon with Miss Hepsy Newton and cut each yard with a kiss. For the deacon has been sort of purring round Miss Hepsy for going on two years. Then after a while, when Mary and Helen bring in the cookies, nut cakes, cider, and apples, Mother says, I don't believe we're going to have enough apples to go round. Esri, I guess I'll have to get you to go down cellar for some more. Then I says, All right, Mother. I'll go, providing someone will go along and hold the candle. And when I say this, I look right at Laura, and she blushes. Then Helen, just for meanness, says, Esri, I suppose you ain't willing to have your favorite sister go down cellar with you and catch her death of cold. But Mary, who has been showing Hiram Peabody the photograph album for more than an hour, comes to the rescue and makes Laura take the candle, and she shows Laura how to hold it so it won't go out. The cellar is warm and dark. There are cobwebs all between the rafters and everywhere else, except on the shelves where Mother keeps the butter and eggs and other things that would freeze in the buttery upstairs. The apples are in barrels up against the wall near the potato bin. How fresh and sweet they smell. Laura thinks she sees a mouse and she trembles and wants to jump up on the pork barrel, but I tell her that there shan't no mouse hurt her while I'm round. And I mean it, too, for the sight of Laura a-trembling makes me as strong as one of father's steers. What kind of apples do you like best, Esri? asks Laura. Russets, or greenins, or crow eggs, or bellflowers, or baldwins, or pippins. I like the baldwins best, says I, because they've got red cheeks just like yours. Why, Esri Thompson, how you talk, says Laura. You ought to be ashamed of yourself. But when I get the dish filled up with apples, there ain't a Baldwin in all the lot that can compare with the bright red of Laura's cheeks. And Laura knows it, too, and she sees the mouse again and screams, and then the candle goes out, and we are in a dreadful stew. But I, being almost a man, contrive to bear up under it. And knowing she is an orphan, I comfort and encourage Laura the best I know how. And we are almost upstairs when Mother comes to the door and wants to know what has kept us so long just as if Mother doesn't know. Of course she does. And when Mother kisses Laura goodbye that night, there is in the act a tenderness that speaks more sweetly than even Mother's words. It is so like Mother, mused Ezra, so like her, with gentleness and clinging love. Hers is the sweetest picture of all, and hers the best love. Dream on, Ezra. Dream of the old home with its dear ones, its holy influences, and its precious inspiration. Mother. Dream on in the faraway firelight, and as the angel hand of memory unfolds these sacred visions, with thee and them shall abide, like a divine comforter, the spirit of thanksgiving.
Do you have a favorite Thanksgiving memory? Something sweet? Funny? A favorite food or recipe? Please share with your Mayorzine family in the comments on the Patreon or on the Facebook posts. I would love to hear your story. Next week is a bit of a departure. A very long departure. Into space. Maybe even with pigs. In space. If you like the podcast, be sure to check out our Patreon if you'd like to support us. Patrons get early access, downloadable files to listen to offline, behind-the-scenes shenanigans, a Discord server for said shenanigans, and a bonus story each month not aired on the podcast. You can find our Patreon at www.patreon.com slash mayorzine. All the fiction featured in this program is in the public domain. This production is copyright 2021 by Christopher James Mayer. All the music used in this program is licensed royalty-free from storyblocks.com. Thanks for listening, and I'll catch you next week.